0: Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Tampa, Florida. Welcome to the show, Allison Williams.
1: Thank you, Victor. I'm very excited to be here.
0: Well, great to have you here. Now, Allison, you've been at this game for quite a while more so from the lending perspective and so much of what's happening in the world of real estate and the world of multifamily today is being dominated by the macro environment and interest rates are making headlines every day. So I know we're going to talk about that. But before we do, maybe give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey.
1: Absolutely. Uh, As you mentioned, yes, I'm definitely have always been on the lending side. I actually went directly out of school into commercial real estate lending in 2003. So I've been doing it almost 20 years. Um, And I started at the bottom. So I started as an investment analyst, analyzing all um, commercial real estate asset types, and then eventually rolled into a um, sales role or like a loan origination role, um, where I was more of a mortgage banker. And then in the last uh, couple of years, I've actually been more in a management role. So my new role, I actually lead our small balance lending platform where we focus on loan sizes two to 15 million uh, strictly for multifamily assets across the U.S. Um, and I've got a dedicated sales team um, that are you know, obviously focused on that area.
0: Now, when we talk about multifamily investing, a lot of the deals that get done start out as value add deals, but someone's buying a property, seeing an opportunity to make improvements to the property, juice the rents a little bit, and then often refinance into permanent financing. That means that a lot of those originations are done using bridge debt. And of course, we've gone through a massive increase in interest rates, probably well above what was assumed at the origin of the project what's your perspective on how those projects are going to transition from bridge debt into permanent financing?
1: It's a great question. I think what's so interesting is that, so if you if you go back the last five years, heavily value-add opportunities out there, I think a lot of people thought that they could get a significantly increased return by going after those opportunities. Fast forward, coming out of COVID, massive supply chain issues, increase in construction costs, A lot of people actually have not been able to complete those projects. And so, you know, they started down the path and then they weren't able to complete. The positive side is that rent growth went through the roof. And so, everyone for the most part in terms of NOI growth was saved by the rent growth that kind of, you know, fueled around the US over the last few years. And so, most of those deals, although they were heavily high octane deals, so high leverage, shorter term, and they were forecasting massive rent growth due to improvements. They still have the massive rent growth, but it was just for traditional year over year, moving tenants in, moving tenants out. So they actually are in a pretty good spot from an NOI basis. I think what will be challenging is we still have this massive disconnect between cap rates and interest rates. And until those come closer together, there will be a gap in financing. You know, I mean, what we're seeing right now is interest rates are maybe best case scenario, five and a half percent. And this is non-recourse debt. And maybe on the high end, maybe you touch seven percent. The cap rates, you know, I think if you look the last 90 days, cap rates are still sub five percent. Maybe if somebody were to go under contract today, maybe you're finally touching a five percent cap rate. And then going forward, you know, I, I do think that we'll see a you know a little bit of an uptick in that cap rate, but I still think there'll be that disconnect between where um, cap rates are and where interest rates are, probably for about an eighteen month period.
0: There's a school of thought mm-hmm. that says at these higher interest rates, cap rate actually doesn't matter because your loan to value ratio, you're not going to get come, you're not going to come close to hitting that threshold. You're going to be debt coverage limited significantly, which significantly. means you're. Pro- right? You're going to pro- probably have to bring cash to the table to get into permanent financing, or maybe you're going to break even, but the hope of doing a cash out refi, that's probably gone at this point. Uh, so maybe cap rate matters less. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, cap rate still matters because I think it's a lot for a borrower or investor to hear that they're only getting a 50% loan to value, right? So there's the, the emotional attachment to like, wow, I'm only getting 50% leverage. That's really hard for me to, to understand and to, to tell my investors. But yes, every deal is debt coverage constrained, every single one of them. So, yeah. you know, ultimately you're going to be constrained by an amortizing debt coverage ratio. Some lenders might do an interest only debt cover test, and that might get you a little bit more proceeds. But um, where we currently are from a cap rate basis and an interest rate basis, most borrowers, higher end luxury assets, maybe they're getting to 55% leverage, more that affordable workforce housing, maybe they can push it to 60, but it's very rare that we're seeing loan to values, you know, really north of 65 right now.
0: That's what we're seeing as well. in on un- in our underwriting, uh, we are not actually at a point where we're converting any bridge debt to permanent. But when we project forward at what we see even current interest rates to be, we've actually put a number of construction projects on hold because we could see that it didn't make sense to start. Unless someone can tell us with confidence what interest rates will be in 24 months, it makes no sense to start. So I think we're like a lot of folks having to put projects on hold because of that uncertainty.
1: Yeah, and I think the other piece of uncertainty is, I mean, I don't know how you structured your deals, but if they were floating rate loans, and they're structured over SOFR, and you have an interest rate cap in there. And maybe that interest rate cap had, you know, a two percent strike rate historically. Now, you know, SOFR term SOFR is about three and a quarter. If you want to go put a three and a quarter strike rate and purchase that cap on your on your asset today, I mean, it could cost you two hundred basis points. So I think we're going to still see a lot of transactions of people moving out of short term loans just because the cap cost maybe becomes, you know, too much of a of a burden um, to handle. And so they want to go into shorter term fixed rate with flexible prepay, so that, you know, they can basically bridge this uncertainty for 18 months, 24 months, and then once the market settle back down, lock in, you know, more favorable rates and terms.
0: So you think the pathway to keeping these properties out of distress is essentially kick the can down the road, extend with bridge, extend with mini perm, extend interest only. And the lenders will be willing to do that rather than have a troubled asset on their books.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think the, you will have troubled assets on your books. There's going to be deals that will fail. There's plenty of bad real estate decisions that happened. Yes, I think that the non-recourse lenders, which is the place in the space that we play in, we have been very diligent and very cautious not to get ourselves back into the same scenario we were in in you know 2008 and so those deals we we were valuing the real estate we were we weren't necessarily just valuing the net worth and liquidity of the sponsor and so i think those deals were lower leverage going in you've got you know in some scenarios you've got 30% cash in front of you i think it's going to take a lot for those deals to go bad there are plenty of deals that were higher octane, 80 85 90%, and maybe they were syndicated, right? And so if they're syndicated and you have a bump in a road and you go to call your investors and say, I need some money to help either pay for my interest rate cap or we're, we're coming off of an interest-only loan to amortization, now we can't make our debt service. Those are going to be tougher conversations and those deals, they may not survive. But I think the majority of the deals, at least the the ones that our company worked on, are in the other sector, which were, you know, a little more conservative, a little bit lower leverage, and we've got a ton of cash equity in front of us. And at the end of the day, the fundamentals around that real estate is still good. And it, we just hope that, you know, that we get through this fast. If it ends up being 24 months, 36 months, maybe we talk again and I might have a different perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So are you seeing? So, where's most of your activity going today? Is it going into refinance activity? Are you seeing a lot of originations? Is it workout? What, what are you seeing today?
1: No workouts, not yet. Um, so, what we're mostly seeing is so we were heavily weighted refinances. Now we're actually seeing more acquisition activity, but we're probably about a 60 40 split. So, not terribly you know, heavily weighted one way or the other. In terms of markets, you know i think the sunbelt has still remained very strong the fund- the fundamentals there are great any market in which has been pro business adding jobs adding company relocations are doing very very well there's plenty of other markets that you know just had massive migration out of their areas that are hurting more and i think you know those those will continue to hurt but we we are seeing really strong fundamentals particularly in the sunbelt area
0: we haven't seen really the the depth of an economic downturn yet. A lot of forecasts suggesting that that's still coming. So we haven't seen the job losses and uh, all Not of those all. sorts of things that, are, that are, we typically associate with a, an economic downturn. Where do you think the most vulnerable assets are? Are we talking C-class, B-class, A-class? Where do you think the vulnerability resides?
1: Well, I mean, if you think just, I mean, high level about it, right? So if... A-class assets had massive rent growth. Some of those units are renting for 4000 5000 a month. Not many people can afford those units. And so it really depends on how, you know, that was where, you know, every new asset that was built and delivered falls kind of into that category. So there was not a lot of workforce housing built in the last few years because of construction costs. You couldn't get a return that made sense. So you built luxury class A. So we have a lot of class A assets out there that are very much on the high end. I think we'll start to see concessions there again. The question will be is, you know, can that owner offer enough concessions to stay full with the current tenant base? Or will those tenant base, you know, leave those assets and go go down a notch, right? Find something a little more affordable. We still have a housing shortage though. So I, I think that there's a massive housing shortage out there. It is extremely expensive to go buy a single family home right now and live there. Your interest rate will be 7.5% for a thirty year. So I think actually multifamily assets will remain very full. Uh, I think the question will be is what kind of concessions come into play? And will we see any rent growth at all? Or will it just consistently stay flat at the same levels? Or will we actually start to contract? That's what we're watching is we feel very, very positive about multifamily as an asset class and about holding value, the question will be is, what's going to happen with rent growth? Does it completely go away? Are we basically back into a scenario where we were in 2017, where you know, there was some negative rent growth in some of these other markets? We may be back there again. And that's fine. I'm comfortable to go back to 2017. <laughs> <Of> <laughs> what course. I don't want to do is go back to you know
0: 2012.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Unless, unless I'm buying and then I do want to be there.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, a fascinating conversation, Allison. if folks want to learn more, if they want to connect, what's the best way?
1: So to learn more about the services that we provide, you can go to Walker Dunlop and that's D U N L O P.com. Um, and there's a contact us form Just share a little bit of information about, you know, uh, the investor themselves and what kind of asset classes they're looking at. Just because I focus on multifamily does not mean our firm as a whole only focuses on multifamily. We do all commercial real estate asset classes. Um, and that will then put you in contact with the appropriate person.
0: Fantastic. Well, love the conversation, Allison. For the listeners at home, definitely connect with Allison at walkerdunlop.com. The link will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow.